Welcome to this week's What a Scream, the horror movie podcast where I, your host, Green, chats with a special guest every week about horror films. And in particular, we chat about a particular subject or topic that I've previously randomly chosen and two films that we feel perfectly encompasses that topic. So this week is all about a particular director and um, this topic has been a long time coming. Uh, mainly because of the persistence of my guest this week. This week's episode is all about infamous horror director John Carpenter. And the reason why we are doing an episode on John Carpenter is because it is the 40th anniversary of The Thing this year. So my guest is a massive fan of John Carpenter and so they were just on at me since pretty much I started this podcast to do a John Carpenter episode with them. Um, my guest this week is my best friend, Anto. Uh, <laughs> he needs really no introduction. You may have heard me mention him several times on this podcast. Um, and so, yes, he is the biggest John Carpenter stan. And that is the reason why we are doing this episode this week. So John Carpenter, born on January the 16th, 1948, is an American filmmaker, actor and composer. Um, he is most commonly known for his horror and his science fiction films, kind of on the 70s and 80s. Um, he is kind of thought as one of the masters of horror so he was interested from films from an early age and he was really into like the 1950s low budget horror films and like science fiction like forbidden planet and it was from that influence that he began filming his own short horror films even before he started going to school um so then he began a film course in university and he started basically doing short films and then he did one of his very first films which was uh, something called Dark Star which was a science fiction comedy in 1974. He then went on to do Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976 but it was then in 1978 which was his first huge commercial success which was of course Halloween one of the forerunners for the slasher genre. And it was then that he kind of cemented himself as a horror director. So from then he did stuff like The Fog, uh, Escape from New York, which was more kind of science fiction. Um, he did The Thing, which is one of the films we're going to be talking about. Um, and yes, he did stuff like Christine and what else did he do? Starman as well. He's done all sorts. Um, and yes, he, he kind of went into a bit of decline in the 90s, kind of went into semi-retirement in the 2000s. Um, but he's still kind of associated with Halloween, of course. So, like I said, this week's guest is my friend Anto. And together we are chatting about two John Carpenter films we are talking about In the Mouth of Madness from 1994 starring uh, Sam Neill and then as I said it is the 40th anniversary 
of The Thing, which is the 1982 science fiction horror directed by John Carpenter. So here it is. Enjoy our chat about John Carpenter. So I would like to finally welcome to the podcast um, one of my very best friends who's part of my inner circle when it comes to film, going to see films and discussing films. And I finally got them on the pod. Um, it is Anto. How are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. Only took two years to get me on the podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's the perfect time to get you on to discuss about this particular subject. So before we get onto that, do you want to introduce yourself and let people know who you are? I don't think anyone knows who I am. <laughs> I don't have a PhD or a podcast, I'm afraid. Um, my name is Anto. I'm a close friends with Graham. I've basically bullied her into putting me on this podcast. Um, I've been asking her to do an episode of The Thing since she first started, and now it's the 40th anniversary end of the month. It's the perfect time. So we thought, that's it, really. <laughs> <laughs> You're just here for the good times. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when did you first get into horror and what was the first horror film you ever saw? Oh, so I, I'm i very jealous when you listen to podcasts and I hear a lot of your guests say, my granny brought me into horror and my, my sisters and my older siblings or whatever, but my there wasn't much horror in my, my house when I was a kid. We had loads of films, used to go to video shop three or four times a week, but there wasn't many horror, we didn't have many horror, so all the horror, my instruction horror was all a bit sneaky on the TV and BBC Two on a Sunday night. Um, a lot of Alex Cox video uh, movie drone, uh, a lot of like late night. The Omen was always on when I was growing up on Saturday nights at about 11 o'clock for some reason. But the first horror film I really remember seeing was um, The Lost Boys, but it didn't scare me. I was about 11 or 12, but I just thought it was cool. <laughs> so um, my sisters and I used to get, go to video shop every Saturday. My parents were around the video. We used to get enough money to rent one video. We used to let in The Lost Boys for about six months. So that was the first film I saw. Through. I remember my dad renting Alien and seeing a bit of Alien and some of that really stuck with me for years until I actually saw it properly and Aliens as well. But um, The Lost Boys, the first film I saw, but that, the first film that really scared me was Evil Dead, Evil Dead 1. I was about 13 or 14 and they used to do a Halloween special where all horror films were a pound. So we used to go down with my mates when I was starting into horror films properly myself when I was into metal and goth music when I was 13, 14. And we used to go down and rent them and we'd pick whatever one just by name, just by picture alone. And then Evil Dead. And then I remember seeing Hellraiser when I was about 13 or 14. And that blew my mind because I was like, what the hell is this? So that's my introduction to horror. So it's, it's, it was morally my friends when I'd been a teenager, you know, that type of way. Yeah. It's very um, <laughs> it's very queer introduction to horror. You're like Lost Boys and Hellraiser. You're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And that was Anto's sexual awakening. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, so let's start with the, the, the subject. Um, so you pestered me since literally since I came to you and Carrie, uh, our other friend in our little film club, aka your wife. Um <laughs> And you were like, when can I do John Carpenter? When can I do the thing? When can I do the thing? <laughs> it was like, okay, we can do it now. We can do it now. So yes, our subject is John Carpenter. Um, and what is your relationship like with John Carpenter as a director? Are you a fan of him? Oh, I've been a fan since I was about 10 or 11. So the first time I saw John Carpenter film, Day Live was new. 
So we went down and rented They Live. I hassled my dad because uh, Roddy Piper is in it. And my, I was a wrestling fan, still am. And I just, They Live blew my mind. I just thought it was the best film ever. So it was about 10 or 11. And then a few years later, we rented Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China was, I thought that was hilarious. thought it was brilliant. And then when I was in college, I started working in a video shop. So I was a typical long-haired guy behind the video shop. And I started working my way through different types of films and genres. And I saw the thing, I was about eight, about 19, and the thing just blew my mind. And then I became a proper John Carpenter fanboy. I didn't, didn't think of myself as much of a horror fan until we started talking a few years ago. And I thought it was normal for someone to have five Evil Dead t-shirts and four John Carpenter <laughs> t-shirts. And then I just thought that was a normal thing. I didn't think I was like, actually, I'm into a horror film. Every second film I watch is horror, but... Until then, until we started talking a lot, when we got to know each other about every second time we talked was about our film. So that's when I realised, actually, I'm into horror quite a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that I was the, the catalyst into your realisation. Yeah, it's a bit, um, bit stupid of me, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Today, everyone had five Evil Dead t-shirts. Um, so the way everyone always goes about on about John Carpenter for me is like everyone talks about Halloween. And you know, and most people know, that I'm a diehard black christmas fan mm-hmm. and so i always felt that when people were like john carpenter started the slasher genre i'm like no he didn't and i guess that's why i've always had a thing against him like i shouldn't <laughs> it's so stupid to have like something against a director because of what other people say but since so obviously i saw halloween and then i was made to watch prince of darkness very recently <laughs> <laughs> i only saw that for the first time two years ago in the cinema but they did a John Carpenter retrospective in the lighthouse and we went to as much as we could possibly and I was like I was really looking forward to it because I had never seen any of it and I was just like what the hell <laughs> it's very weird Satan is a bit of goo who time travels or something <laughs> and then as well as watching so I have seen the thing before but back when I was like super young and it just a lot of it went over my head because at that point I was into like as much gory shit as possible and because it has quite a long break in the middle I got very bored because there was not a lot of action going so I didn't appreciate it but on my rewatch I feel like I'm I'm gonna go and and do a deep dive on John Carpenter films for myself personally because I actually quite enjoy him as a filmmaker you say that now weekly watch Ghost of Mars You'll hate me forever. But the thing is, my favorite John Carpenter film, Halloween, is up there. But Halloween wouldn't would be like my fifth or sixth. I'd have uh, Escape from New York, They Live, Big Trouble in China, all ahead of Halloween. Yeah, just for my own personal choice. But that's just that's just me. But the thing would be my top favorite film in my always in my top two since yeah. I was about eighteen. Okay. Well, let's get into the thing then, as our first film. Um, as you said, it is the fortieth anniversary of its release. Um, yeah so that is why we are doing it so would you like to introduce the thing and give us a brief synopsis please yeah so uh, the thing came out in june of all all times 1982 in america story of uh the usual story of four lads or a couple of lads down on antarctic way um you know as you do so it's the story <laughs> it's the story of um uh, a bunch of uh, research scientists out in in antarctica and they're um they come across a dog and all is not as it seems as the dog turns out not to be something that they recognize. Um, the, um, the fear and the paranoia ratchets it up as the, the, the events unfold. 
they um the dog turns out to be an alien that can assimilate the the men and become whatever it wants and they can't see what it is and they don't stop everyone stops trusting each other and then it just leads to a crescendo of, of violence and flames at the end um yeah that's pretty much it a group of paranoid lads in in the frozen tundra yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off from the beginning let's talk about that opening scene which through my research of it i found that it is like an amazing opening scene. So it opens on this dog running across the, the frozen land and these Norwegian guys in a helicopter chasing it, trying to shoot it. So you have no fucking clue what's going on. You're like, why? Immediately you're like, they're assholes. They're shooting a dog. Mm. They're assholes. And then the dog comes into the camp of these American guys. And because for some, the Norwegian can't speak English or whatever, they just, they shoot the Norwegian guy because he's basically shooting at them because the dog has gone uh, into them. Um, that opening scene is actually a foreboding of the rest of the film um, because it, it, if you don't speak Norwegian, the Norwegian guy tells the whole story yeah. of the film. It's great. Um, so that's a great you... Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think of the opening scene? I love the opening scene. You know, the dog actually went on to be famous. It's a famous acting dog. Who's also no way. I forget his name now. So he's in, he's, he's, he's in White Fang. He's in th- all types of films. I think he's he might a good have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, he's a good boy. Yeah, the opening scene. Well, the first you have the cheesy spaceship crash landing <laughs> thing that looks like someone threw a frisbee in the air. And then the opening scene is just what's going on? What's happening? And then the, the like it's, it's very like you don't know unless you're Norwegian. And if you're Norwegian, then you know exactly yeah. what happens. And it's just, it's quite weird that the, their instinct just goes to shoot the man mm. straight away, which is a weird overreaction, I think. And I think it's it plays in later on when, I think it's Gary who shoots in the leader and he's very, he's a weak leader and he's very, he's very um, indecisive, except in that one moment when it was most, so it's very bizarre. Um, and yeah. one of the things that very early on, you see that it's a bit like Alien, the crew are, are a ragtag bunch of misfits they're like you think research scientists you think men who are put together or women who are put together who are like very smart these are like McCready's an alcoholic mm. the doc is a bit odd but you can't put your finger on it which i didn't know i only noticed when i saw it in the cinema he actually has his nose pierced does he 19- yeah which you don't see until you see it in the cinema but in 1982 that was probably a big no-no <laughs> um windows and i forget the chef's name are stoners who are watching reruns on tv and um Keith David's character has anger issues. Everyone, they're all, they're all, they're all, they're all very normal characters you can relate to. But um, even straight away, Clark, who's in charge of the dogs, doesn't do his job properly. He doesn't put the dog away. And so it, it's very, very relatable. It reminds me of work. <laughs> <laughs> no one's doing their job properly and it leads to disastrous consequences. <laughs> yeah, so what I like about the introduction to the crew and to their environment is that we're not, a lot of the time when you've got these kind of things, it introduces this like really kind of gung-ho group of scientists who are all about professionalism and blah, blah, blah. But it lands us straight into a point at which they're already kind of suffering from their isolation yeah, and already suffering from cabin fever and probably a certain amount of paranoia as well, which I'm sure we can all relate to after lockdown. Like <laughs> it's so funny how relatable it is now. You're like, oh, who am I out of all those? Like I'm the alcoholic. right and the great can i just point out right he's got that great um stinky pete hat 
you know, like a prospector hat yeah. and these sunglasses. He's so stylish for being in like the Antarctic. Yeah, I, I read the book. I got the book for Christmas. The, Who goes there? I got the Frozen Hell version, and in, in it, McCready is a meteorologist. I just can't imagine, and he's he's initially talking about the weather, and I just can't imagine Kurt Russell talking about like storms and storm fronts and weather. It doesn't it just doesn't quite ring true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's not exactly like you know when you think of action heroes. A lot of the time, they're very like perfectly quaffed and like mm-hmm. perfect beard, and he's not. He's just no. like you know he's been there for a long time. Yeah, 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 and that's 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 what it brings you straight into the middle. Of, as you said, the middle of the the problems and the issues. Everyone's. Even they're, they're watching the videos. I think they're watching Wheel of Fortune and go, oh, I've seen this one. Yeah. Like, so imagine how monotonous that is when you're watching the same TV shows with the same answers over again yeah. and again on VHS. Yeah. And I really appreciate that, like, straight into the action because, you know, I hate a long setup. Um, so I, I do appreciate it. Um, so we we see this dog. And they're 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 all still a bit weird about it, especially because McCready and is it the doc that goes to the Norwegian? Or yeah, no, yeah. yeah, they I go to the Norwegian it. base and they discover this gross humanoid-like creature that was burning. Mm. So, I mean, instead of leaving it to burn like you think you should, they bring it back <laughs> for science. <laughs> for scientists don't forget. <laughs> Um, and while all this is going on, the dog is then led into the the cage with the other dogs, and it begins to turn inside out. Mm. Um, at which point, you get the full force of the special effects, which are fucking amazing. They're amazing. They stand up today. Uh, Robotine did the effects with a little help from Sam Winston. Robotine is famous for he made the Robocop suit. He invented the mm. Robocop suit and the bladder effect and the howling. The howling is. It's not a great film, but the the werewolf effects are amazing on it. The, yeah. the transformations they go on for ages as well. I remember seeing them years ago. They seem to go on longer than uh, American Werewolf in London. They seem to go on for about ten mm. minutes. But um, he put himself in hospital after that. He did the effects for so long. Oh my god! He ended up having a nervous exhaustion and had to collapse after the after the shoot. He's become a recluse since. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So he, he would be like you think of him. I always think of him and think of Tom Savini, who's the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm. Tom Savini is like, I did this, and look at me, and Robert Deans will be of uh, if, if this is a similar scale, if not better, but he's gone, nope, no, nope. it hasn't done an interview in about 10 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. He's got, his hair is really like Kurt Russell's, though, in the thing, when you see the pictures from around yeah. there. He's got the exact same haircut there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the blowout. Yeah, um, yeah. So the transformation, like you said, with the howling, it's really long. Like, yeah, really, yeah, and you see a lot of it. Yeah, there's no cutaways. It's no. so thorough and it's like i i would have loved to have known what source inspiration he had for watching that. yeah yeah <laughs> especially because you know like tom sabini's like oh i went to vietnam and saw yeah. dead bodies and i'm like what inspiration did that guy get for the thing yeah it, it gets missed it's very body body horrorish mm. and it never gets mentioned in that night i think and it's a big sh- it's always uh people mention about physical effects versus cgi effects and i think that's a big a big reason for it. that would be one of the films that would definitely won't be in my case for arguing against cgi and you see that in the, the prequel the thing yeah which we won't talk about too much <laughs> like i i'm never into like alien horror i i, I think you mentioned that a few times yeah, in the podcast. Just, just a few times like i'm not a big fan of alien horror at all but this one i like because of the body horror element in it mm. um i and i love body horror i love it just looks so disgusting. Yeah, it's like the scene with the defibrillator is gross. 
Yeah. And then the character goes, you got to be fucking kidding me. And you're like, that's your natural reaction. Yeah. That would be your reaction if you saw that. You know, it's it's proper proper ghost. But it, the reason it works as well is you've got this body horror, horrific images, but you also have the paranoia and the, the mundane and all this works in. So, mm. like, if you almost took the aliens out, there would be... You feel like you take the whole alien element out, the film could work. It's just a, a ratchet up the tension type of thing. Like they ran out of food or they're cut off in a storm. Yeah, like it's exactly. so it's so well done that like obviously you can't take the alien out, but it it works in a few different levels that way. Mm. So once they realise that what they have on their hands is an alien of some sort uh, who can shape shift and take on any form, um, they <clears throat> fire the dog. They barbecue it, basically. Um, And then there, as I said at the beginning, there's a break in between. There's Mm. quite like a long space between more body horror because this is where the tension really amps up and this is where the paranoia starts coming into play. And I think that's what I missed when I was younger. Yeah, it's it's because you're young and energetic or like (laughs) you want to see people being, now you you appreciate it much more. Yeah, it's definitely a film that the older I got, the more I appreciate it. And it's just like you said, it's that mundane with the edge of paranoia that really kind of amps up the horror. Mm. Um, So how did you feel like, how do you feel that John Carpenter worked with that paranoia? Oh, it's brilliantly because you can, you can see it and feel it. I think, I think I said a few minutes ago at the very start when they, they give out to Clark because the dog's been wandering around the whole area and they're already suspicious of each other straight away. And then, um, one of the guys later on finds someone's underwear in the bins and it's like, he's just like, who's discuss- who's disgusting underdrawers are these? And it's not like, it's not out of the blue. They're just like, it's almost like they're like, again, or it's sort of like more of the same. And he, he cranks up the tension in and around the alien. It's not like, mm. it's not like a, a creature feature where it's, it's sort of, there's just a, a segment of just paranoia almost. Yeah. 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 And then it's kind of exasperated by... You know, we've got Kurt Russell who obviously has a drinking problem. Yeah, there's a breakdown. Like, yeah, like the the doc goes absolute like wild, mm-hmm. and it seems like everyone, not character flaws, but you know their their kind of darker side starts to come yeah. out. Um, and then after that, we get to the defibrillator. Defi- I can't even <laughs> say that word. Defibrillator. Yeah. Chest scene. Chest scene. Um, which it's funny because it's I kind of it kind of reminded me a lot about Alien. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why do you think they're so similar? And do you think John Carpenter was purposely? I don't think so because I only really noticed that years later on a rewatch, I wasn't like, "Oh my god, a rip off." of aliens i i think it was more just they were looking for a, a, a shock effect maybe because it it becomes grotesque now that the, the the original description of the alien in the book is very similar to it's not very it's quite similar to what they've done in the in the film the faces within the, yeah. the body and the different faces and, and there's a red eye this keep mention of a red eye in the book so it's quite it's quite close to it but i don't think it's it's, it's it might have been I don't think it's on purpose, but I think it's it's hard not to possibly, yeah. especially when it's only three three years between the films. And they shot in eighty one, so it's only about three well, seventy eight is alien. Yeah. It's not too far off it. But I think yeah. it's different enough that because it just goes from zero to hundred in the space of four seconds. Yeah. Um I think I prefer the things ch- uh, chess scene. <laughs> just because again it's more body horror. Like I just yeah. oh, you see the chess burst scene from Alien like, ah oh, yeah. Mm. All right weird little it, creature but like 
a guy gets his arms ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> and then so a head, cool. a head splits legs and hisses. I thought that I like so the head. It's the noise the head makes. The spider head just goes, mm. and they're like, "What?" <laughs> but it's kind of funny because obviously the creature has had to see a spider somewhere yeah. to, to turn into a spider. So. Or it's just grown legs just yeah. to get away. <laughs> But it's so it's like it's almost quite comical that bit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's very it's very it's absurd. It's just like what well, it's so absurd. That's why the 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 line is, is so funny because it's your natural reaction. <laughs> um so this is where, as you said, it all gets amped up to about a hundred, and this is where we see the majority of the action. So they've got to kind of figure out a way of how to tell who is the creature everyone thinks it's McCready um and so he you can see his face deteriorate like he hasn't slept in days and he's so tired and everyone thinks the creature is him because of Mm. that because he looks so maniacal there's Um, a lot of detail in in McCready's appearance sometimes like he starts off like Kurt Russell beautiful yeah you know a little bit rough or whatever but that's what we like about Kurt Russell and then he's so like his eyes sink in, and he he looks like a war- walking corpse, basically. Yeah, the scene with the the dynamite and the and the, and the lighter when he's frozen and he's shaking, he looks like a zombie or something like that. And by yeah. then he's he's uh, he's not he's not his usual self. <laughs> but there's a lot. I, I, something I have to mention is there's a lot of red herrings in, which totally throws in the paranoia. It gets you involved in the mm. paranoia. So there's McCready's underwear. There's the whole thing with the keys. Um, mm. Gary doesn't know who gave the keys to. He swears blind, he didn't give them to him. But actually, another thing I noticed in the cinema, the key, uh, when you see it in the cinema, uh, Windows has the keys and he drops the keys and you hear a clang. But you yeah. don't see it when you watch it in your home thing. But like so, but you don't remember that at the time. It was only years later, like when, it, as I said, two or three years ago, I saw it. So there's loads of red herrings that they just throw at you. The whole Blair thing, Blair's outside, yeah. is he inside? Um, Childs, uh, I was, I, why'd you leave your post? Oh, I was just there for a second. Yeah. So there's all these type of red herrings, and you're like, "Is it him? Is it him? Is it him?" Yeah. And it, it bleeds, and that bleeds into your suspicion because you don't know who it is, yeah. and you're you're an active participant in, in what they're thinking. So yeah. that's that's brilliantly done up to then, especially leading up to the um the blood the blood and the the blood test. Yeah, I I love that scene because it's it's so tense because you're mm. just like the yeah. only thing that took it out of it was for me was you could see Kurt Russell's fake hand. <laughs> you don't know if it wasn't his real hand <laughs> well I'm guessing because the dynamite blew <laughs> <Because> up <laughs> um, so yes it's a really good scene where they're testing um, petri dishes of everyone's blood against the fire because they figure that this thing will try and protect itself against harm so it's like everyone's normal blood you know it fizzes whatever and they're um two of the men are tied to this couch um while mccready is testing them and then all of a sudden he tests another dish Mm -hmm. and it goes and um like congeals and then crawls off um (laughs) it's it's just such an effective scene in building that tension and then that jump scare there's a really good jump scare and some really good lines as well and then the whole when McCready shoots Clark, an innocent man, it's like makes him a murderer. So now they mm. suspect they're more suspicious of him. It's just the whole thing is just it's got so many elements of so many different things for horror, for horror to thriller, and it's just it's crazy. And there's a good line about being tied to this fucking couch, which is hilarious. <laughs> which I, I laugh at every time. Like I know we've been through a lot, but I would not spend 
all my time tied to this couch and you're like that is again a normal reaction that's not a super superman's reaction that's a, a yeah. person's reaction so then during the last standoff um kurt russell comes into contact with the the creature and it's this big mm. we don't really ever get to see it it looks kind of wormy yeah it's 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 all over the place it changes every time you see it. you never see it until you see sort of like a monolithic turkey headed and then it's got other people's faces in it and bits of bits of everyone is assimilated and stuff like that it's yeah. very bizarre and then it's got a little spaceship built in the ground yeah. <laughs> don't forget the little spaceship yeah i feel I like just... that's a nod to like the 1950s yeah yeah, well, yeah especially the original one the original mm. i haven't seen the original but it's a very i've seen clips of it it's very boris karloff like yeah frankensteinish type of monster in the snow but i've actually not seen it um neither yeah, but the the spaceship is the same as the description in the book, which is funny because mm. the book is written in, I think it's written in the thirties. I can't remember. Oh, wow. But it's um, the, but the the book is only about hundred pages. But I, I I think they spend fifteen pages describing the, the two spaceships, the one at the end and the one at the start. You're just like, yep, yeah. okay, yep, yeah, yeah. it's got it's silver. We don't know how it's run by it's everything. And then like the rest of the book is the aliens, and that's a bit. And then you're finished. You're like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> um. So let's discuss the ending then. What do you think of the ending? Do you think it's a hopeful one or do you think it's no it's a it's a typical carpenter nihilistic ending like i love i love the fact that people argue over the ending all the time and then then like people will say it's keith david's character because you can't see his breath even though you clearly can the the whole theory of um of mccready with the the gasoline so they say that it's mcgasoline in the bottle not 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 whiskey and he passes the bottle and he knows or they just freeze to death <laughs> like they, they both could just sort of freeze to death because the camp is disintegrated and blown up. Yeah. So there's no hope in that ending. It's a very, it's a brilliant ending, but you think about it all because it doesn't spell it out for you. Yeah, it's not wrapped up in a package. It's just like, yeah, what do you, what do you think about it? And just the amount of YouTube videos that get get released, and then you watch another one, and it just contradicts the other one. And it's just like it's it's brilliant because Carpenter is very um purposely very vague sometimes, but he's also very deliberate. Mm. So you have to just sometimes you can't spot the difference between the deliberate sometimes sometimes the vague and he this the thing is the best example of that some of the other films you're just like that's in an open thread that's mm. never followed up on but the thing is just it's all mixed in it's like the red herrings and and the clues and the not clues and the wrong clues like you know so yeah it's really well done so you don't like it's basically whatever you think which is mm. sounds like a cop-out but it's is the right answer i kind of feel like this is my theory on it um i feel like john carpenter told us what the ending was uh on the computer it said if this thing got into the world it would take twenty seven thousand hours to take over the whole world and then john carpenter came out and said this is one of my the first film in his apocalypse trilogy um so i kind of get the feeling that in his head anyway the thing whether it you know went back into sleep mode and then was mm. taken again but eventually the idea was that it was going to take over the world yeah yeah so like they're better off the two the, the, the last two heroes are better off dying than the world yeah. ending and it's it's again it's left up to you mm. yeah it's um it's definitely very open but open on purpose mm-hmm. um the other thing I, I always think of is that people always say um you think everyone goes oh it was, it was critically um critically banned when it came out mm. it, like and I, I was looking it up before the show and it was more than critically banned it was destroyed like roger ebert, ebert called it a barf bag of a movie <laughs> i thought that line was hilarious and like all these sci-fi mags murdered it like and just mm. crucified it and he was really dejected 
So I looked up, um, I see I see uh, Carpenter had been on Letterman at the time. So I watched that and Letterman's openly hostile to him about it. Mm. And the crowd, they showed the clip, they show where uh, the, the chest burst are seeing it, like about 30 seconds, and the crowd are almost booing. And he and Letterman goes, would you let your kids see that? Because uh, back in 82, there wasn't a ratings like we have it now. It was yeah. more open, it was more, so before the video nasty stack. And Carpenter was like, well, if they're old enough, like, but he can see Carpenter's visually a bit like, what the hell, why are you so aggressive? And yeah. like, you know, it's like, it's, it's not a film not made for kids, but if they're mature enough, I'd let them watch it. And it's just, I was, I didn't realize how vicious it was. Yeah. Which when you think about it, it's crazy. And that's why it was only discovered years later how good it was and yeah. mature at the time as we all got more um what's the word more cynical as the years went by <laughs> yeah i mean one thing i'd read is that because et had come out in a similar time everyone was still kind of aliens are cuddly yeah like... <laughs> that's what i think is hilarious because that's a bit of a cop out it came out two weeks before like and poltergeist was it et poltergeist brave runner and that all came out in a few weeks of each other now, in Ireland and England, it came out in November. The thing yeah. came out in November, so it's probably better received over here than it was over there because it's yeah. closer to Halloween. <laughs> it's so strange. Like, I don't know why. I mean, apparently, you know, America was going through a bit of a depression then and people were like, it's too, like, it's too yeah, negative. It's, <laughs> it's too dark. It's too awful. Yeah. It's 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 the grotesque. It, someone said, I can't remember who said it, it was that the cast are just set up to be murdered and destroyed by the thing. And you're like, well, it's a horror film. <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> That's kind of the deal. Yeah, there's no final girl in this one. Right? Yeah, ah, Carissa. <laughs> <laughs> He's fabulous final girl here. He really does. <laughs> so what do you think of the subtexts of the thing? Do you think there's any moral um, moral tales to this or anything that was kind of reflective of the culture that it was coming from? Yeah, there's definitely the Cold War culture. Carpenter is very anti-authority. He's a typical boomer, like, yeah, yeah. Mm. anti-authority, but he's he's a bit anti-establishment, anti-government. But like he's he's always everything. Most of his films, his good ones anyway, all have that sort of feel on them, whether in the subtext or or subliminally. So he's like, there's definitely that Cold War paranoia element, and how like you can't rely on anyone. Like Gary is the lead in it, but McCready's just the pilot, and he ends up taking over because everyone trusts him. But the Gary's weak and he's ineffectual, so McCready just takes over, and it's only when and Keith David challenges him, but like everyone just sort of just is like, no, no, it's McCready. So it's that sort yeah. of distrust of authority he always has in his films and his character is always a bit his lead character is always a bit nihilistic they're always a bit a lot of them are smart arses and nihilistic and some of them are unlikable like the sam neill character in the in the in the mouth of madness but um yeah so it's it's always there's always a subtext i think there's nearly always a subtext in his films but the good ones the better ones anyway maybe not an invisible uh, memoir as an invisible man yeah um one thing i had read was that people have kind of put on it is it came out around the time as the aids epidemic was starting in america and like a lot of horror films around that time um there was a lot of you know um secret parasites in horror films. yeah paranoia about especially bodily things Mm -hmm. do you think that that reflects in the thing I think you can put it in afterwards, but I don't think that was on purpose because I'm not sure of the timeline for the AIDS epidemic, but I think 81, 82 might be a little bit early. But it's it's it was obviously in the, the mainstream consciousness in the late in the early early mid eighties. So it's always there. It's like the fly. The fly is an obvious yeah. version of it. It's right there yeah. in your face, it's that type of thing. But uh, it could be read into it, but I, I don't think it's was mm. on, on purpose by him at the time. Yeah. Um Basing that on nothing, by the way, just off the yeah. top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it has anything to say about 
uh, favorite buzzword, toxic masculinity. I want to ask your opinion on this. <laughs> I knew you. I knew you were going to ask Let's about see. that. <laughs> um, oh yeah, well, it's they're, they're all toxic, but it's it's a toxic and and the environment is toxic. The whole event is the, it's all set up to fail from the start. There's it's you're in the Antarctic. You're supposed to be research scientists. The, the, the equipment looks old as well. Mm. If you look at them, the, the equipment all looks old and shoddy. And I know it's 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 it is on purpose. It's it's not just an accident that it's all the gear looks old. So definitely. The atmosphere is toxic. A bunch of men st- stuck in primal quarters, and then something goes wrong, and they all blame each other straight away. So it has a, mm-hmm. a bit to say to it, but I think that's probably just because it's a bunch of men together. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised that it it didn't it didn't have that kind of misogynistic element. It was more like well, this is just what happens when people are in a room together; <laughs> like they go mental. You're saving the misogynist for the other film in the in the yeah, Apocalypse exactly trilogy. Right. Yeah. You kept it all there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was actually quite surprised by that. Um, obviously, the only female we're kind of introduced to is the the computer, the, uh, <laughs> the chess game, which yeah. I think Kurt Russell says to shut up, bitch, at some point. Yeah, so like, <laughs> got a cheating bitch or something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and pours a drink on, on it. <laughs> which goes to show just how kind of mentally unstable he's become that mm. you know apparently he loves chess and he's yeah. like i'm just going to destroy this now yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, a funny thing related story from my life do you remember the snow we had to really snow and we all had to leave work and we're all locked in yeah. for two or three days yeah i started putting quotes up on facebook from the thing you know like no one trusts any anyone anymore all the type of stuff over space of like two three days my mom texted my sister to see if I was okay. My mom was like, they're probably film quotes, ma'am. Google Google the quotes. <laughs> and she was like, how did you know? I was like, he always just puts up film quotes or song lyrics. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, yes. So what do you think is the legacy of the thing? I think uh, the legacy now with this so little practical effects now, um it's that's the biggest legacy it's it, it's become the standard like and, and that and fly as well those type mm-hmm. of 80s films you look at cgi and i think you really see it when they remade the thing and mm-hmm. the prequel was i think it's 2011 um the, the fa- effects of that were all originally made practical but the 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 um, studio wanted a cgi and you can see straight through it it's all mm-hmm. it's all poor it's all weak and i think that it's always going to be the practical effects i think mm-hmm. and the ratchet up of the tension as well yeah um for me as well it's the the practical effects as well like as you mentioned the fly i want to feel physically sick watching something mm. and i want to see it's the mucus and the goo and the the look of disgust and horror on the actor's faces like <laughs> like i want to see that like that's <laughs> that's what makes a perfect i just feel like the 80s really got it mm. they yeah. really got the grossness well, even um, another film, uh, like Robocop and Total Recall, Robot Team did the effects for. There's some gross bits in Robocop. There's a guy destroyed by nuclear waste and a car crashes into him. That really stood with me when I was a kid. Yeah. And then uh, in Total Recall, yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger has things pulled out of his face and heads explode and stuff like that. It's all very similar, but it's all very tactile and very like like the bladder effect. It bubbles and it looks like it's about to burst and then it blows up. It's always like. It's, it's gross but you look like you can feel it whereas cgi yeah. it's gotten a lot better in the last few years but it's almost see through all the time or weightless even yeah. Yeah. yeah what kind of influence do you think the thing has had on 
modern sci-fi horror or modern horror in general? I think it's become the standard bearer for a lot of horror sci-fi. You don't see a lot of good horror sci-fi. Carpenter is so influential everywhere. Like mm-hmm. now, it's like I, when I was when I first got, got into him in the late nineties, early two thousands, he wasn't cool. It wasn't seen as a cool thing. He was this old guy. The films were bad, and over the years, just been a reevaluation as times and attitudes change. So. The thing has become like that in Halloween. Halloween was seen as naff when I was when I, when I was a teenager because at that stage you're on four and five, and they're all the, the the cult of Michael Myers and the curse of Michael Myers and all those. So he wasn't seen as cool. So now he's he's seen as cool, and you see it everywhere. There's even like direct ripoffs or direct homages, I should say, mm. like the Void and VFW and stuff like that, and even Stranger Things in the music. But I think the thing stands up as like just an excellent horror film about paranoia. About it's got, it's got everything. Mm. yeah i definitely agree with you the whole stranger things not just mm. for the music but also like yeah. the creature designs as well mm. um you know there's a point i think where the dog opens up and it looks like a demogorgon or yeah like yeah. i would relate to as a demogorgon um so i can definitely see that um so obviously you'd recommend the thing to horror fans I'm i'd recommend you watch it once a year yeah and if it it's snows <laughs> even better even better yeah so you get the full effect put on your your, your snorkel jacket and enjoy it it influenced my fashion fashion choices as well in my 20s i had a big a big hooded jacket okay what you're gonna say in I, my 20s I had a hat. no no <laughs> <laughs> maybe sometime um so let's move on to the next film the next carpenter film um from great to not so great well, well i i picked this because I don't think a lot of people have seen it. Everyone's going to go, are you doing John Carpenter? You'll do The Thing or Halloween or The Fog yeah. or that type of stuff. So In the Mouth of Madness. And I've been calling it in, Into the Mouth of Madness for about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so if I say it, it's because of that. <laughs> um, I did not do it on purpose. But um, I, I, I'd never seen it until about three or four years ago. We went to see John Carpenter play. And when he does the gig, he, he plays the team tune and he has the yeah. like a couple of clips in the background. And I was like, it looked it looked amazing in, in like a three minute burst. Mm. The effects look great. It looked I was just like, why have I not seen this film? Then I watched it and realized why I hadn't seen it. <laughs> but having said that, I watched it yesterday or the day before and I enjoyed it much more the second watch mm. because I was like, he's he's clearly not taking this seriously whatsoever. Like he's just he's just along for the ride. There's so many elements where he's just like clearly just uh, he's having a fun time and the gastic is is um it's it's it was read, written by um michael deluca who's a very famous writer he's done like the sister brothers social network captain phillips all these type of like oscar worthy films mm-hmm. and then he's also written this and I'm like this doesn't fit into rest of your repertoire <laughs> so in the mouth of madness, I can't, I'm going to go say into the mouth of madness. Yeah, I definitely will. In the mouth of madness um, is a 1994 supernatural horror film, as you said, written by Michael DeLuca and directed and scored by John Carpenter. Um, it stars Sam Neill um, as John Trent, who, when it opens up, he is a patient in a psychiatric hospital and he tells his story to a um, a doctor who is visiting him. Um, and we find out that he was an insurance investigator and there is um, this writer of horror books called Sutter Kane um, who 
according to his publishing house, has gone missing and they would like John Trent to take one of the other workers um, and go and see if they can find him. So it takes them to a fictional town called Hobbs End and this is where things start getting a little bit wacky. Um, I think it was a wacky from the start. Do you remember yeah. what the very first line of the film was? Sam Neill's very first line. I think it might be the first line of the film. It's definitely Sam Neill's first line. Sorry about the balls. After he kicked the guy in the balls. So on rewatch, I was like, that's some opening gambit <laughs> to just go in straight in. And then that's when I watched it the second time, I was like, oh, he's not taking it seriously at all. It's all the timeline's insane. He gets locked up. And then three, a few hours later, the psychiatrist comes and he goes, oh, things must have gotten much worse in the three hours I've been here. If you're here. Yeah. Like so, and there's all these hints of apocalypse and yeah. all this type of in the background and the radios and everything. You're like, how much worse could it be in three hours? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, awful. He did manage to find a black crayon and draw crosses everywhere and all over himself. Yeah, just like a four year old childhood. The <laughs> <laughs> never ending, never ending crayon. <laughs> so, according to this publishing house, uh, Sutter Kane's books have the. Um, ability to make people go crazy basically Mm. Um, uh, Trent is attacked by a guy with an axe who it turns out was his editor Um, because he read his most recent manuscript which is In the Mouth of Madness Um, so even on the car ride between Trent and this woman who I cannot remember who her name is Styles. Thank you, Styles. Editor Styles, yeah. Um, they start seeing things like at one point she runs over this old lad on a bicycle. Or is it a boy? Is it a child? <laughs> Who knows? Um, and then time seems to have no meaning and they just arrive at Hobbs End and all the characters from Sutter Kane's books are in this town. Um, it's... I Like... I can't even tell you, you what happens. Like it's can't, just... you can't describe the plot. It's it's a bit like Groundhog Day, but in a horror film. But also, it's absurd. Like the 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 church scene with the dogs and mm. she, she, the 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 female character Styles goes, "They're gonna have guns, move!" And he's like, "What are you talking about?" But Sam Neill is really unlikable the whole time. Oh God, he's yeah, he's so unlikable the whole time because he's going, "Oh, this, I'm not going crazy," and you're like. Yeah, I wish you would because you'd probably be a bit nicer. He's really unlikable. They, they took the the Kurt Russell character, Big Trouble in Little China, and mm. made it made it like really unlikable. I just like the way he kind of like changes from American to Australian every now. Yeah, and then. yeah. sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> like he he made no effort to keep that American accent. Like even when yeah. he's just like. Uh, sorry about your balls, mate. You're just yeah. like, oh, that's so Australian. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we find out that Sutter Kane is almost like this, oh, I want like prophet, I guess, and he's like creating the apocalypse. Yeah, he's 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 a link to the other world, and the demons are teaching him the H.P. Lovecraft style demons are teaching him how to write this book, and the book becomes the future, which will bring the downfall of man. <laughs> it's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so two points i kind of want to draw from this is yeah. number one john carpenter isn't a fan of religion no no and um, we see that several times yeah yeah um i i take it that this whole sutter Kane 
write in this book is aching to men writing the Bible and people mm. becoming fanatical about the Bible. So I take it that's what John Carpenter is trying to say. I think so. And they mentioned the Bible several times in the mm. film. Stephen King gets mentioned twice. It's like, mm. oh, it's written, it's been translated more times in the Bible certain times. And it's, it's very much that uh, anti, anti-religion type thing. But it's the, the film is so so absurd that it gets lost sometimes that you're like, yeah. is that the point? It's not the point. Oh, wait, look over there. You know, type yeah. of way. It's, it's, it's so messy and crazy. Like. Yeah. I mean, the... The only way that I kind of was like, okay, this is definitely what it's about is because Prince of Darkness is also quite mm-hmm. anti-Christian as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> why do you think John Carpenter is so anti-Christian? And why why do you think he's so forthcoming in his views, in his films? <laughs> I, mean, I, I just think it's his generation. He's the mm. He was in college in the 60s, you're in Vietnam. He just came out. Just early early seventies, I think it's that era where he doesn't trust the government, doesn't trust religion. He's just he's just that type of that's I think that's why some of the stuff go went unheralded at the time when it was a much more optimistic time and stuff like that. And now now we're as I said earlier, we're all much more cynical and much more like the, as a as much more much less excuse me, much less religious as mm. compared to what they were. So I think I think his teams were always there, but they're they're much more the rest of the world is is caught up with them maybe. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely talking about fanaticism um, when it has to do with religion. But I could also take it as like toxic fandom as well. Yeah, yeah, like definitely the from the very start, it's so absurd. The agent jumps through the windows, and mm. and then he's looking at the posters, and it, it's it's very much. Um, my favorite scene was remember the the, the type of stereotypical eighties nerd guy yes. uh, has the glasses and and the, and, the, and the sweater vest. <laughs> he's talking to him, and it's like something from Revenge of the Nerds or something. I was just like, what? What's happened? And I, I couldn't tell if he was being mean about fans or if he was if he was saying that they shouldn't be fanatical. It was just like. <laughs> And do you think that's from John Carpenter's own experience with, say, something like the Halloween fandom? Um, or do you think he was just kind of doing a general commentary? I think it, I think he was just doing a general thing because it's not written by him and he's not, or Deborah Ellis, there's no, mm. there's no um, I'm not sure how much, I'm sure he's had influence into it, but I'm not sure mm. how much he had into the writing. I think it's more just of a, a team he was probably attracted to. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much input he would have had into it, but yeah. it's definitely it's very him at the same time. So yeah. I think that could be why it's it's a bit messy as well. Yeah, um, like I did. I'm gonna be honest. I didn't like it. I didn't like in the mouth of madness because it was just too chaotic. Even though I know mm. it's meant to be chaotic, because of course yeah. it's like Lovecraftian, so there's gonna yeah. be a certain amount of chaos there. But one thing I did like was how you can relate it now to fandoms, especially recently with like the Star Wars fandom getting a bit like aggressive and violent, <laughs> like basically. And it's so ridiculous when you think about it. And I kind of like the way that we can relate it back to something that's happening now. Yeah, I I, I think the, the way fandom's going in the last few years with the internet, it's, it's crazy. Like actors get the blame for writers' choices or producers' choices now mm. just because they're the face of it. It's, it's crazy and i can't i was 94 so he's well into his career then yeah i i imagine he's had a few run-ins with either crazy people and he, and he always hated the studio system he never really liked mm. it so he's in and out of it so he's had bad experiences he's had a lot of bad experiences funny enough for someone so famous in and out of the studio mm. um so yeah i can imagine that that's just a team that he relates to 
Yeah. Um, is there any other subtexts or any other points that you would like to make about in the mouth of madness? <laughs> <laughs> I one point it, um, I did, there's uh, an actor in it. What, the thing about John Carpenter films, the more the, his better films have this similar actors in it again mm. and again, and you always see them. It's like an Easter egg coming back, and he's got um, there's one guy at the very start. Um, oh, his name escapes me now. Who is is the guy he's investigating for insurance and he and he's in it and he's in actually in like six or seven of Carpenter's films. Mm. So I always think the be- the better the Carpenter film, the more regular people it has in it. Like the other yeah. way. so that and then in the Mount of Madness only has one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Memories of Invisible Man, which I haven't seen in a long time, has none. So yeah. the more of his regular friends and actors he has in the film, the generally the better it is. But relating but directly to the story, I think I think I think the film is is a worthy try, but a bit of a mess. Yeah, like it's it's chaos, but I did enjoy it the second time much more because I knew it was, um, I knew it was going to be almost farcical, and the the character, the the Styles character is horrendous. It's badly written, badly acted. It's just like what's happening. But then at the end, I've, I'd forgotten that they go, "There's no such person." Yeah. So then I was like, "Well, maybe it's badly written because it's all in his head." Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, maybe I agree with that," but no, I don't think I can. Mm. And what do you think they were saying about the very end scene? So Sam Neill escapes, everything has gone tits up. Sam Neill escapes from his cell <laughs> and he wanders through and, and goes sees the empty, film. Yeah, goes and goes to see the film. Um because he was trying to stop the book and then he realized there was going to be a film and he goes to see the film, but it's literally the film we've just seen. <laughs> and he watches it with his popcorn and he's like, ha, 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 ha. Um, what do you think they were trying to say with that? I just think they're trying to be super meta. <laughs> before meta was a thing, before Scream, before the last, I don't know when the last action hero came out. I think the 90s was the rise of the sort of meta. I think that, that was the the plan. It always feels a bit tacked on. Mm. I, I do love the the scenes on the way home when he's in the, the, the motel and on the bus and he's screaming and he doesn't know what's happening. I think that's hilarious because it's just, it goes from being crazy and absurd to just this one man and his madness. And um, and then he goes to see Charlton Heston, who's, who was the, the editor of the, mm. the, 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 of the book, the, the sort of cane books. And he goes, you, you brought me these books seven weeks ago and now the film is out. And uh, it reminded me of, you know, Friends, the Joey film, where yeah. he goes, Betsy's been dead for seven years. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're a kid and you were writing stories yeah. and you couldn't think of a right ending, so you were just like, it was all a dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's what it reminded me of yeah, yeah. <laughs> so out of the the three apocalypse trilogy films where do you think this stands do you think it's a good addition to the to the trilogy because in my head it's like the thing and prince of darkness is kind of like how it starts mm. and then in the mouth of madness is how it ends yeah i i, I think I think they're good. They're, it's a, it's a it's an okay addition to the John Carpenter. It's good if you like a lot of John Carpenter. It's it could be it's more for fans. I think um, it, it it doesn't stand stand up well mm. long term. I haven't seen Prince of Darkness. I've only seen that once in the cinema, but I, I it wasn't my favorite. I think the Fog is just so, is ten times better than the two of them. Yeah, and it's a shame that the Fog doesn't get 
it doesn't have a bit more of an apocalyptic vibe so it can get yeah. thrown in together i think the apocalypse trilogy is it was sort of put in afterwards not, not a marketing tool but more of a people noticing it and yeah. in the late thousands saying actually these three films all go well together and i don't think that was the point i think it's just because the thing he had a lot of input in prince of darkness is a labor of love and as i said i'm not sure how much input he had into in the mouth of madness yeah so they're, they're sort of lumped together it's like a box that you'd see in, a, in, a, in an old video shop you know just put the three, yeah. three three films together yeah so would you recommend in the mouth of madness to horror fans? if 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 you're a john carpenter fan yeah but if you're mm-hmm. um, and, and you like something a bit meta I wouldn't say just for a general horror fan. I wouldn't start with this. I'd go for, <laughs> obviously, go for the, like, the theme and the mm. fog and Halloween first, if you haven't seen any of them. Yeah. One thing I will say about both The Thing and In the Mouth of Madness is there's a lot of times where you can see Halloween's influence in them. Yeah. Like, The Thing is very much Halloween set in the snow with an alien. Um <laughs> <laughs> Actually, while you while you said that, sorry to drop. There's a a scene that one of the deaths was re-edited in mm. the thing. I think it's Niles' death because it looked too much like Halloween. In the in the in the cinema release, he he burns him alive. And they all think he yeah. committed suicide. But in the outtake, there's a scene of him with a pickaxe in his chest, and he's hung up yeah. really high. And it's really like the thing. Yeah. Apparently, Carpenter cut it out because he's like, oh nope. <laughs> <laughs> but even there's um there's a scene where Sam Neil in the mouth of madness, Sam Neil is in his prison. Uh, not prison, he's, um, he's cell, and you see a man's shadow just going across the mm. screen, and I was like, that's so Halloween, like, that yeah. is so Halloween. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple of them in the thing, there's a, um, do you remember the scene where the dog walks into the room, and there's a silhouette yeah. there, the silhouette was, um, I forget a sec, his first name is Warlock, is one of the, uh, his, and it, it's purposely not one of the actors' silhouettes, yeah. but it, he's sometimes it's the, the shape shadow in Halloween. Yeah. So it's um, I think it's Dick Warlock, but I think that might be mentioned. I forget his name now. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so he he uses he uses he uses the same people in post production again and again. Mm. Like um, the director of Halloween Three is Dean Cundey, a cinematographer, and Tommy Lee Wallace are all working. So I think you're going to get them and use the same people again and again. Yeah. You're going to get those sort of hints and silhouettes but i think a lot, a lot of the halloween influences never just never leaves them yeah yeah um so usually i ask like which out of the two films would you choose? <laughs> i think it's obvious yeah i think it's kind of obvious um so coming back to john carpenter as a filmmaker though i mean i know we've touched on it briefly but what do you think is his influence in the world of horror oh it's huge now like it's it's huge you've got you've got like you have stuff like the purge to stranger things the music the atmosphere this 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 the the anti-authoritarian authoritarian feel the anti-religious feel he has everything he touches a lot of the mm. the, the, the um the touchstones of horror very early on and mm. it's just anti-authority type of thing that you see again and again and you and you see um homages like uh, have you seen the void no it's on shutter mm-hmm. it's a Great retelling, a bit like Assault of Precinct 13, yeah. mixed with Into the Mouth of Madness, the H.P. Lovecraft thing, mixed with the thing. And people try and do it, but it's, they just can't pull it off. There's that yeah. little, little bit of difference. But I think he's, he's just he's, he's just become, I hate the term horror master. Did you ever hear that mentioned? You hear yeah. that mentioned a lot. I, I hate that term. But I think he's just become synonymous with horror now that he's just, yeah. it's just everywhere. It's just, especially the music now. The music is mm. just everywhere now. You can't get away from it. I think since synth music is back, like. Yeah. Yeah, he he was definitely like an all rounder. 
Mm. And he's only just coming into his era of being appreciated wholly. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I like, said, in the 90s, he was hated. I remember like, working in a video shop with people outly hated him. And like, they're like, oh, he's naff, he's terrible. And he'd get the blame for Halloween 5, even <laughs> though at Halloween 2, when he wrote that, I think yeah. after Halloween 2 and 3, he was like, I'm out. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. And you can see why. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting about John Carpenter with me. Um, or pestering me into uh, pestering you for two years, yeah, yeah. and now I start as soon as you get off this call, I start pestering you for to come back. <laughs> Tom Atkins uh, revival. Um, so before we go, what is your favorite horror film? Thing and why is it? I was going to say why is it The Exorcist? But never mind. Yeah, <laughs> no, the thing, Evil Dead Two would be my two favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evil Dead Two is amazing. I saw Bruce Campbell introduce it once in. Um, in Dublin, and he was hilarious beforehand. I got to meet him, yeah. and it just and then it was all even that has always been one of my favorites way up there. Mm-hmm. So, th- those, those two would be the best. Okay, thank you so much for coming on. No problem, thanks for having me. So, that was my chat there with my good friend Anto about the master of horror that is John Carpenter. What do you think of John Carpenter? Are you a fan? What are you more into? His science fiction y stuff or his horror stuff? What do you think of his apocalypse trilogy? Um, let us know on on social media. So that is Instagram and Facebook at Water Screen Podcast. Or I am more into Twitter at the moment at what underscore scream. So you can definitely at me there and keep up to date as well with all of my um, writings as well. So this weekend, I just want to tell you all about there is going to be a great online horror movie festival it is from soho horror film festival it is called so home horror pride um and it's an online festival from june 24th to the 26th and it is to celebrate queer horror or that hashtag horror is queer so you can find the full schedule of the events and where to view all of the events and the films that are going on you can find them on facebook um so do check that out that's what i'm going to be doing this weekend to celebrate pride um i hope you enjoyed last week's episode as well about um queer horror and however you're celebrating pride just know you should be celebrating it all year but enjoy pride and don't forget pride was a riot it was started by a trans black woman um and yes Happy Pride, everybody. Um, And don't forget to stay horrific as well. Um, And rate and review and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. I will see you next week. Or you will hear me next week. In which I will be talking about... What will I be talking about? I will be talking about... Should be a horror. So films that I feel are not necessarily in the horror genre, but should be. So that is next week. So I will see you next week. Goodbye.